Welcome to the Believe Bulimia podcast with guest Spencer Bishens, author of Social Security Disability Revealed. Hi, everyone. I'm Laurieann. I'm the host of Bleep Bulimia. Welcome. And today, my guest is Spencer Bishens, and he is the author of Social Security Disability Revealed. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So this is going to be really interesting. So we'll start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I went to uh, the London School of Economics uh, and got a master's degree. And then I went to Florida State University for my law degree. And after being admitted to the Florida Bar, uh, I uh, got a job with Social Security doing disability claims. And I had never heard of the Social Security disability system. I had no idea what it was, but uh, I was really well trained. I had a lot of great colleagues and mentors that I could ask questions to, and I learned a lot. And then I ended up staying there almost 11 years, uh, writing almost 2,000 disability decisions for Social Security Administrative Law judges. And I also reviewed several thousand more cases on appeal. And uh, so during that time, I just learned so much about the process. And when I left the Social Security Administration, I, I wanted to have a way of decomplexifying the process, demystifying the process, and making what is a really complicated process um, somewhat easier for people to understand. That's beautiful. And I'm really glad that you reached out to me because uh, in in your uh, email, you were basically speaking to how this has implications for people with eating disorders. And so I thought, mm -hmm. you know, and bulimia being an eating disorder. So I'm really excited about hearing your take on all of this. Uh, I wouldn't even know how to start the question because I know nothing. I mean, I'm in Canada, so we do have a system that might be different from the U.S., but I'm right. sure that there's going to be some similarities to that. So please do tell us a little bit more about your thoughts. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize the wide array of impairments that can result in a Social Security disability claim in the United States. I've had people tell me, but I don't need a wheelchair, so I'm not disabled. Or, um, but I, one person said to me like, oh, it's just cancer, I can't get disability. And I said, just cancer? And she said, well, yeah, I mean, so sometimes I can go to work. And I said, yeah, but if you can't work a full-time job, that's social security's definition of disability. And it doesn't matter what the medical impairment is. There are a lot of different, uh, body types uh, and a lot of different um, types of impairments and uh, Social Security has listings for all of them. So yes, yeah, section one is just musculoskeletal uh, and, and that's the most common impairments, of course, because people after working for many years they have problems with their knees they have problems with their back it, it kind of makes sense that musculoskeletal will be the most popular impairments for disability claims but uh section three are respiratory impairments section four are cardiac impairments and section 12 are mental health impairments and mental health impairments can impact someone's ability to work in the same way 
as a knee or a back impairment. If you can't work, you can't work. And the fact that the impairment is impacting the liver or the heart or the brain uh, and not the knees. In Social Security's definition of disability, if you have an impairment and it prevents you from working, you can be found disabled. And uh, with regard to eating disorders, and that's the term, I know the show is called Leap Bulimia. I was trained on using eating disorder because that's within the social security listing. So that's probably what I'll just, my brain will just default to that. Um, it's actually, it's actually considered a mental health disorder, whether or not it should be, is not for me to say, but that's where it's classified in social security's listings. The mental health listings are in section 12 and eating disorders is section 12.13. So I think it would be great to start there because the first way someone could be found disabled is if they meet the requirements of a listed impairment. In section 12 point, and you can just go to a search engine on the internet and do SSA listing 12.13 and it'll come up, eating disorders. Of course you need medical evidence, right? So the medical documentation of a persistent alteration in eating or eating related behavior. I'll translate that into regular English. You have to have evidence that something outside of the normal eating pattern is happening uh, that results in a change in consumption or absorption of food. So, and it doesn't say one way or the other. So eating disorders could be eating less food or more food. It just says change in consumption or absorption of food. Uh, again, I'm not a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm not familiar with the physics of exactly what happens once food enters the digestive system, but it's interesting that it does say consumption or absorption of food that significantly impacts, uh, impairs physical or psychological health. So the reason I wanted to start here is you can see that this is actually a pretty broad definition because alteration in eating or eating related behavior, right there, we have a divergence, right? An or, and then either of those things can impact consumption or absorption of food. And then the impact on the person that makes it difficult to work can be something that impairs physical or psychological health. So just here in the listing criteria, we have so many different permutations, right? It's not, there's not just like, you have to have this specific thing that we think of as bulimia in order to meet this definition. You might have something that maybe departs from a traditional mainstream definition, but that still meets this medical and legal definition and, and could, you know, result in approval of a disability claim. So that's interesting. And, but in regards to the process, so let's yeah. say I thought, you know, okay, so bulimics are generally functional, but it is a mental health issue. Definitely, you know, without dealing with that, you're not going to be able to deal with the eating disorder. Uh, but, and it's strange. I, I would say that it didn't, it didn't make me not work, but it interrupted my work patterns and behaviors 
because right. of the thoughts of I want to eat right now and I want to go do this. And Social Security's definition of disability is the inability to do full-time work for 12 continuous months. So full-time work. So if you're having enough interruption that you're now down to maybe part-time work, you know, if you think, if we think of a traditional 40-hour work week, if, mm -hmm. if you're having so much disruption, that you're only really able to work 20 hours. If you can show, obviously you have to have medical evidence to show that, but if you can show that, that meets social security's definition. You now have an inability to do full-time work. Wow. So in that process, okay, so let's, let's say that there are, and, and I would say that in bulimia is a little bit, it's something that you can hide a lot easier, but then you've got the anorexics, which we've had people who have struggled with anorexia on here because as much as it's bleep bulimia, it, you know, we're kind of, um, and they're all different, but yet they're eating disorders, right? Um, exactly. And, 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 and they're all, they all come under that one definition because of how yeah. many ors there are in that definition and that legal definition, yeah. right? But I would, uh, you know, in the sense of anorexia, uh, that I find more often than not is even more debilitating. I don't know the word. I can't say it right, but you know what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, debilitating. Because they will. They right? get to the it, point where they're not functional to go to work. And and this is something where uh, this particular impairment has a lot in common with all of its friends in section 12 in the mental health section. PTSD, anxiety, depression, personality disorder. What they all have in common is for people who don't have these medical impairments, it's really hard for those people to understand why something that I can't see impacts your ability to work. And actually that's the same case with physical impairments that are non-visible as well, like fibromyalgia or genetic impairments or connective tissue disorders, which cause a lot of internal pain, but you look fine to me, right? Yeah. And that's why I actually in part four of the book where I talk about evidence, I split up that discussion into visible impairments, non-visible physical impairments and mental health impairments, because it is important for people who have non-visible impairments to understand that they're not less disabled, that the rules don't apply less to them just because they might appear sometimes to be okay or to be able to work. A medical impairment is a medical impairment. And according to Social Security's rules, all the medical impairments are treated the same, whether or not it's visible or non-visible or, or a mental health impairment. And so the fact that sometimes some people might be able to, I don't even like this phrase, but the fact that some people maybe could sometimes hide their impairments or mm -hmm. downplay the, the true impact of those impairments, um, that actually doesn't matter. What Social Security cares about is from a medical standpoint, you know, let's look at, let's look at the medical records with you and your medical sources and your doctor. And, you know, if you're constantly coming in to the emergency department of a hospital um, with uh, flares of your condition with outbreaks, I don't know what the appropriate term is, I'm sorry. But it, it, you know, if it's, if you're being impacted on a fairly regular basis, 
and you can show how could I ever maintain a full-time work schedule, right? Look, ER visit after ER visit after ER visit, and you have treating doctors that are saying, I've been seeing this person for a long time, and I can tell you that this person's individual symptoms are so disruptive that there's no way this person could work 40 hours per week or anywhere close to it. That's evidence that supports a disability finding under social security's rules. So I do want to encourage people who to just get away from that traditional thought that disability must require a wheelchair just because that's what we see in parking lots. That's, that's not how it works when it comes to social security. Social security is asking, do you have a medical condition that impacts your ability to do full-time work? And if you do, you're just as entitled to social security disability benefits in the United States as someone with a knee impairment or back impairment or shoulder impairment. That's really interesting. I don't, I don't think that, uh, you know, even myself through my bulimia, I, again, I was functional and I worked all the hours I needed to. Um, and I'll tell you that sometimes it was really hard to go through it, but I did it. Just, that's but even that word but... functional, that, that word functional is, can mean different things to different people, right? Yeah. For some people with some impairments, if I can get out of bed and get dressed and like maybe make myself a meal, that might be considered functional for some people with some impairments. Whereas other people might say, you know, I don't feel like I'm functional because I can't get up and go to the gym for two hours at 5 a.m., right? So that's one of those terms that um, is, is, is different for different people. And because it's so subjective, you know, you might think you were, you might say I was functional because I was able to go work part-time 20 hours a week. Well, but that, that's great that you, you're, for you, that's functional, but it still means you couldn't work a full-time job, right? So you could be yeah. and feel functional and still meet Social Security's definition of disability. Interesting. Now, I would think, though, that, and I don't know, listeners, you can, you know, make some notes under here to send in, uh, that many people with uh, eating disorders, whether it be bulimia or anorexia or even overeating or whatever the case, would even consider that that is an option um, depending on where they're at. And, and that's not unique to that particular impairment. I hear this all the time. Like I said, someone recently who's undergoing cancer treatment told me they had no idea they were eligible for disability. And I've spoken to people with heart conditions, with HIV, a variety of impairments. And people say, I had no idea I could get disability. But there are social security listings for all of the different body systems and within each body system, a variety of specific impairments. In our case, we're talking about mental health section 12 and obviously specifically the eating disorders listing, but yeah, it's a really common thing. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book because the social security definition of disability is complicated how disability claims are decided is complicated. The whole process is complicated. And there's not really a lot of good resources to just break it all down into plain English for people and to say, 
yeah, you have paid into the system just like anyone else. Well, I don't know about you, because if you're Canadian, you probably haven't, right? But for your American listeners, Yes, we do, and that's not fair to say because our taxes are really, really high. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just meant meant you haven't paid into the U.S. Social Security (laughs) disability system. That's all I meant. But your listeners who are U.S. citizens or permanent residents who are paying the Social Security tax, which comes right out of your paycheck, so you're paying it every week or every two weeks when you get your paycheck. You've already paid Social Security. If you're paying into that system and you're paying for those benefits, then you're entitled to file a social security disability claim if you have an impairment that truly impacts your ability to do full-time work. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you want to be doing full-time work. So let's say there's a stay-at-home parent who isn't planning to be doing full-time work. They can also file a claim. Whether or not you're currently doing full-time work or have any intention of doing it, that's not part of the definition of disability. The question is, could you do full-time work? So that even people who don't really have that on their radar for the immediate future um, can can still file a disability claim. Um, but c- there is actually a part two or a part B to the definition, if we could talk about part B, because um, the part that we talked about earlier, that part with all of the ors, it doesn't actually end there, and that's one of the uh, one of the problems, one of the places that people can get tripped up in these mental health listings is what we call in the social security world the B criteria, and it's just because it's part B of each of the listings. And so, even if you have medical documentation showing what we talked about earlier, the alteration in eating-related behavior, consumption or absorption, impairing physical or psychological health, you have to show the degree to which it impacts your physical or psychological health. And so that's where the B criteria come in. And so you have to show that there's a pretty significant limitation in at least two of these areas. Understanding, remembering, or applying information interacting with others, concentrating, persisting, or maintaining pace, adapting and managing oneself. And those, like I said, those B criteria apply across all of the mental health listings. But what it means is in addition to showing that there's a history of an eating disorder and that it has some impact, what social security wants to know is these four basic areas of functioning in a in a full-time job would you have a really serious impact to at least two of those areas and that's how they determine whether or not not just that you have been diagnosed with this condition but that this condition is severe enough to prevent you from working a full-time job okay so So when you talked earlier yeah so when you talked about functionality earlier yeah we have four different kinds of functionality, right? Maybe you could understand, remember, and apply information, but maybe you might show up at a job and not really be able to interact with other people and not really be able to focus and concentrate. So you're there, but if you have problems with interaction or concentration, that's two of the four things. So it doesn't, they don't require that you have problems in all four areas, just two of the four. 
And that's how they determine that it's a, a pretty serious case warranting disability benefits. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Uh, now to that, I know that you've spoken to your book. Can you speak more to your book? Because I mean, I know it didn't, it doesn't just cover this. I love that you're here and explaining this particular portion of it, but there you go. <laughs> Please yeah. do reveal your book and let us know what it's about. Yeah, and I think this is important because a lot of people, I would say most people, don't just have one impairment, right? There's often uh, other impairments that are impacting a person. So even someone who says, like, I have a heart condition, that person might also have diabetes or oftentimes if some just, just because someone's not able to work, they might develop anxiety or depression. And so someone who has been diagnosed with an eating disorder, I wouldn't be surprised if that person has other diagnoses, could be other mental health diagnoses like PTSD or anxiety or depression, or it could be that maybe it impacts their body in a different way. And maybe there's like digestive impairment diagnoses and that's, that's in section five. So there very likely is more than one body system impacted, or at the very least, more than one specific impairment. And that's why it's really important to know more than just about that one specific listing. It's important to know how the whole social security disability system works in, in the United States, because it's absolutely enormous. Over a million people file for claims every year, which is approaching like almost 5% of your entire nation's population, right? Wow. And not long ago, it was almost 2 million people filing claims every year. Social Security has tens of thousands of employees that just handle disability. If this system were its own country, it would be one of the largest adjudicatory systems in the entire world. So oh it's massive. We're talking tens of thousands of claims decided by social security judges every single month. So there are a lot of employees, but that means there also have to be a lot of rules to keep cases moving through the system efficiently. And so that's what I talk about in the book. What is the disability system? There's actually two different programs. What is the difference between the two programs and which program is the, the best one for your particular situation? the process by which social security moves its cases through the system, the process by which they decide whether you're disabled. We talked about the social security listing for eating disorder, but actually, even if you don't meet the strict criteria of that listing, social security can still find you disabled if your condition is severe enough to be medically equivalent to that listing. So like if you don't meet every specific element but they decide, but it, your condition is so severe that it's as though you meet every element, they can still find you disabled. And even okay. if that's not the case, they can find you disabled on a vocational basis because there's no job in the national economy that exists in significant numbers that you could do. So that's all really complicated. And it's understandable why people don't understand all of that without some help. So I wrote the book to yeah. provide people the guidance to break everything down into plain English and say, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, here's an example. So you understand what you can do, what you can't do, 
are you allowed to work? How much are you allowed to earn and still get disability benefits? What's coming up next? I wanted to help demystify this process so that people could understand they've paid in, they're entitled to file claims, they're allowed to, to say, I'm disabled, I can't work, I need this money. And I wanted people to feel empowered to not only start the process, but to know that they can see it through. To know, I know this is gonna be tough. I know social security is gonna ask a lot for me as far as medical records and evidence. I know that there's gonna be barrier after barrier put in my way to prevent me from accessing these benefits. But I wanna know what these barriers are. I wanna know exactly what the rules are so I can follow them and stay within them. And I wanna know what's happening next because if I know what's happening, if I have that knowledge, then I can feel empowered to navigate that system and to give myself the best possible chance at having a successful claim. Perfect. That is a lot of information. You're right. I, I mean, it's great that you're providing that for people. Um, and where would they be able to find your book? Or where do you yeah, we're on, Amazon, we're on Amazon, uh, ebook and paperback, Barnes & Noble. Uh, Apple, lots of platforms. The easiest thing to do is to go to our website, visionspublishing.com, B-I-S-H-I-N-S publishing.com. And we have links to all the different places to buy the book. We also have a thorough description of its contents. And you can even check out the table of contents to see how the book is laid out. For example, I talked about this earlier, but in section four, we talk about evidence because yeah. The United States, we don't have a public health care system. So for people who can't work and don't have health insurance, it might be really hard to, to get care, which means it might be hard to get documentation and evidence for your disability claim, right? So in section four, I not only talk about the differences between visible and non-visible and mental health impairments, but also a lot of the different ways that you could go about obtaining evidence because that's one of the barriers, and maybe it's the biggest barrier that people have in the US social security system, is I don't have access to health insurance, I can't afford to go get care, I guess I just can't get enough evidence, I, I just, there's no reason to do a disability claim, what's the point? Yeah. And there's, I, I wanted people to be able to think outside the box and to understand that there's a lot of different creative ways to get good care and good documentation. And again, feel confident that what you're submitting to social security is good evidence and can work. And I, I wanna make sure people know what they need to prove, how it's all going to work, who's gonna look at that evidence, what they're gonna do with it, so they can understand this is the key, this is the information I need in order to present my case in the best possible light. Wow. And who better to get that from than the lawyer who wrote the book? Right. That's really, and, and, and having who, worked in it for that many years. So that's beautiful. And someone who wrote almost 2,000. Yeah, someone who wrote almost 2,000 decisions. Because what I've noticed is a lot of people will get their information from the internet, from support groups. And I'm not saying that's not, there isn't some valuable information. But the thing is, if you ask other people about their experience, 
everyone's going to tell you about one experience, right? All anyone has is their own experience. It's all, so it's all, it's a bunch of anecdotal anecdotes, right? It's all anecdotal experience. Whereas I wrote almost 2000 decisions. So I saw all different kinds of impairments. I wrote several cases with eating disorders, the primary impairment, lots of cases where it was a secondary impairment. I wrote approvals. I wrote denials. I have written cases about listing 12.13 for eating disorders. I've written for all kinds of judges. And so, so what I'm bringing to this book is obviously more than just anecdotes, right? I, I'm aggregating all of that knowledge and experience over the course of many years and saying, when you look at this big picture, here's the information you need to know. Here's the evidence that you need to get. And by the way, I don't recommend that people do this on their own. So if any of your listeners are thinking, oh, this is so overwhelming, I can't possibly do this on my own. I don't recommend that anyone do this on their own. Throughout the book, I talk about why it's really important to educate yourself on the system and to hire a social security disability representative to help guide you through the process. I wouldn't fill my own cavities. I don't fix my own car engine. I wouldn't do my own surgery. So I don't think anyone else should handle their own legal proceeding. Hire a legal professional, but they're really busy people. And so while it's really good to hire a legal professional, to help you gather evidence and submit your case and represent you at the hearing, they can't explain every single part of the process to you. It's just too complicated. So it's great to have someone in your corner representing you, helping you along, but it's also good to educate yourself, right? And to know the process and to know what you're getting into so that you can advocate for yourself and work with your representative to present the best possible case. That makes sense. Having knowledge, it makes you less overwhelmed and, uh, and, and, and understanding more too, because when sometimes when your lawyers will talk to you about certain things, it just becomes like, I don't know, but it sounds like your book is offering a probably for somebody who more layman terms, I would imagine, yeah. in regards to that, right? Right. And, and and what you just said is is really important. In order to even communicate with your representative, you need to speak the same language. And as a claimant, you speak normal person English, whereas the representative also speaks social security disability. And there are so many terms and acronyms and definitions it really is its own language and they will try and sometimes break things down for you simply, but it's really difficult because that's all they do all day long, right? It's social security. So they're used to saying RFC. Oh, it's important that you have a sedentary RFC. And you're like, what's an RFC? I don't know what that means. So in the book, just one example in the book, I say RFC, that's your residual functional capacity. It just means what you can do with your impairments. That's a fancy term for saying what you can do. You have an impairment. Can you work 10 hours a week? Can you work 20 hours a week? Can you interact with people? That's all that means. And now when your representative says RFC to you, you, you know what that means. And you can understand what they're saying and converse with them in a way that will 
help make better use of your time and their time instead of them having to take, you know, if you only get 30 minutes to meet with your representative, you don't want to waste that time having them explain things to you that you could have already learned. If you know all this information ahead of time, you can just get into their office and jump straight into your case. Okay, representative, what do you think my RFC will be? What, do you think we have a, a, a chance at, at, at a step three decision? What's going to happen? What's the vocational expert going to say at the hearing? You know, you can get into the nuances of the case and you can get a lot deeper and you can really have your representative make better use of their time, education and training because they're actually focusing on the details of your case versus trying to explain things to you that you possibly you know, could have already taught yourself by, or have me teach you through, through the book. So yeah, I think that anyone who reads this book and gets educated on the process will understand it does apply to them, assuming again, they're a US citizen or permanent resident, right? And they paid into the system and that they can do this and they'll know exactly what to expect and they'll know exactly how to find a representative and how to hire a representative. They'll know how the representative gets paid so they won't have to ask those questions. And they'll know what to expect when they get to each step of the process. That's brilliant, that's perfect. I really appreciate you coming and sharing this with us today. This is very, a, a very unique topic. So I think that that's wonderful. Thanks for reaching out to me again. And Spencer, I know you said it before, but as we're closing off, can you please again, tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, the book is called Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It. It is available on Amazon, or if you you want to buy it somewhere else, or you want to ask your local library for it, you can do that. Uh, but if you want to access it somewhere else, you can find links on our website, visionspublishing.com. You can also find a description of the book and links to all our social media. Beautiful. Thanks again for being a guest today. Really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you.